1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Sam Moppin is engineering, and I'm quite happy to be back behind the studio mic after having celebrated my 40th wedding anniversary with Dan Rice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't get any better than that. We went to Hawaii for about five days and just reminisced looking back and looking forward to whatever God has for us in the future. But had a wonderful time. I'll just leave it at that. You don't want to know the details of all of that. I just, we had a wonderful time celebrating our, uh, our anniversary. Anyway, I'm glad to be back today on the program. We're going to talk with. Oh, and by the way, I just want to stop and thank guest hosts who filled in for me this past week. Uh, That's such a big deal for someone to, out of the blue, just pick up and, you know, I'm going to host a two-hour program. uh, And I'm so appreciative of Pastor Greg and Mike Lee. I think, was was there another? Looking at Sam. Yeah. Uh, Who um, filled in and guest hosted the program. So I really, really appreciate that. These are people who have full lives of their own and stuff to do. (laughs) One of them, a pastor. I mean, he's got plenty to do anyway. I appreciate very much Pastor Greg Allen and Mike Lee, my associate for filling in on the program this past uh, week or so. Anyway, today on the program, we're going to talk with Dr. Deborah Harris. She is a retired senior instructor. Did I mention we celebrated our 40th wedding? Did I mention that? Did I? I said something about it. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Uh, Dr. Deborah Harris, she's a retired senior instructor from OHSU PSU School of Public Health. Uh, she's going to be uh, one of the primary presenters at an event coming up uh, in June on the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body and re-engaging post-COVID. It's part of the Seniors Open Discussion Series, but it's open to more than seniors. And in our discussion, we'll find out who will benefit from this event. And quite frankly, anyone who uh, is um, concerned about someone or is uh, experiencing the effects of loneliness and isolation themselves. Anyway, that's coming up at Parkview Christian Retirement Community on Thursday, June the 9th. Uh, Registration is at 930 and you are invited to uh, to participate. They're asking for an RSVP. We'll talk with Dr. Harris about that later in the second hour of today's program. We'll also talk with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life. As you may have heard, the Oregon Right to Life office was vandalized over the weekend. We'll find out what happened and what happens next when Lois joins us also in the second hour. And there's a new study out that confirms the impact on schools of the COVID school closures are saying it's a disaster for poor and minority students and the loss for all students was much greater than originally anticipated. So we'll get into that also in the second hour of today's program. But in this first hour, we'll try to wind our way through as much news as we can, as it accumulated in my absence. There are things that I'm just now catching up on, but do want to at least make a mention. One thing that's very important, and sometimes it's a bit frustrating, okay? You get the voter's guide in the mail, then you get the ballot, and you look through who is, who's that? I don't know anything about this, but it's a challenge to become informed and to cast an informed ballot uh, for the upcoming um, primary election. Now, there are resources available. I'm so grateful that I received. From the Oregon Family Council, their voter guide, that helps. These Some of these candidates have answered questions that give you some idea of how they would likely vote on issues of concern to the Christian community. And there are other resources. Take the time. Read the voter's guide. Uh, you might need to pray about it because some of them it's not altogether clear. But uh, do take advantage of the opportunity to influence the course, not only of the state of Oregon, but the the nation In that, we have uh, some national election uh, votes to cast as well. One week, by the way, before the Oregon primary, elections officials here in Multnomah County are reporting about 9% voter turnout with just over 50,000 votes counted. Uh, But those who haven't yet voted have a a little more wiggle room. For the first time in an Oregon primary, mail-in ballots that are postmarked on Election Day will count. Now, before the elections office would have to have received your ballot uh, on election, on or before election day for them to count. Now you can mail it on election day and it will still count if it's received days later. The ballot return numbers are trending about the same as they uh, were this time four years ago and eight years ago, according to uh, the director of elections in Multnomah County. That means we could end up right about um, in the 30% range, maybe a little lower, maybe a lot. Higher. Well, the option to mail ballots on Election Day has been in place for years in um, Washington. Just remember to drop your ballot in the mail before letters are uh, picked up on Election Day. You can also drop ballots at county um, collection sites until 8 p.m. on the election night. It's uh, not clear if or how the new postmark option will delay election results, although I can't imagine it won't Uh, anyway. Uh, Historically, they say they receive about half of the county's ballots by mail, which means that uh, by election night, they have results from about 65 percent of the the vote. It's often enough to call a race, but not always. The bottom line being that um, your vote will count, especially if there's a low voter turnout. uh, Your impact is magnified. So don't be among those who uh, look at the uh, the outcome, wring your hands and lament what happened. Be a part of the process. It's a privilege that we have, and I hope we'll all exercise it to the best of our abilities. Well, the Food and Drug Administration limited its emergency authorization of Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine because of the risk of blood clots, the agency said uh, last week. The risk of rare and potentially life-threatening blood clots following use of the vaccine warrants limiting the authorized use of the vaccine, the FDA said in a statement. The FDA has determined that the reporting rate of blood clots is 3.23 per million doses of the vaccine administered. And the reporting rate of um, uh, TTS deaths is 0.48 per million doses of vaccine administered. However, the agency determined that the benefit of the vaccine outweigh the known and potential risks for adults who either cannot receive Pfizer or Moderna Uh, vaccines or who refuse to take any COVID vaccine except Johnson and Johnson's. This means that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is authorized only for individuals who cannot receive an mRNA vaccine or refuse to do so. So there you have it. Uh, The FDA is limiting the use of Johnson and Johnson COVID vaccine. Check it out if you uh, are looking for a vaccination or had Johnson and Johnson and wonder whether or not you are at risk. Now we need to take a quick break, but we will return again. We're winding through a lot of headlines from the last several days. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with Dr. Deborah Harris, a retired senior instructor from OHSU-PSU School of Public Health. We'll be talking about uh, the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body and re-engaging post-COVID. There's going to be a senior open discussion series presented by Parkview Christian Retirement Community. Thursday, June the 9th, we'll give you all the important details. That's in the morning at 10 a.m., In their community room. We'll also talk with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, about the uh, Right to Life office uh, being vandalized. Apparently, there was a Molotov cocktail uh, thrown couple of them, and one of them was, in fact, um, incendiary. So we'll talk with her about what that means for the organization moving forward. Well, you may not have heard, but there is a baby formula shortage. Joe Biden continues to downplay the crisis of inflation. The House and Senate keep trying to push legislation that will flood the market with dollars, continuing to devalue those same dollars. Uh, raving pro-abortion activists howl about this SCOTUS leaked opinion and attempt to bully the justices into changing their minds because... Uh, The opinion isn't final until it's actually published. All the while, the rest of us are suffering. Particularly dire to uh, parents is the baby formula shortage. Well, the baby formula shortage became an issue for new parents back in November of last year. But the shortage is getting worse, not better. According to USA Today, nearly 40 percent. 40% of popular baby formula brands were sold out at retailers across the U.S. during the week starting April 24th, according to an analysis which assesses supplies at more than 11,000 stores. Well, in mid-February, Abbott Nutrition, a major manufacturer of infant formula, recalled several of its formulas that were made in Sturgis, Michigan. The factory, according to the Food and Drug Administration, had failed to maintain sanitary standards. For its part, Abbott Nutrition claims that the baby formulas were nowhere near contaminants found in the facility. Um, It has recalled the products just the same. Well, the shortages plus inflation are causing prices to soar on those much needed products. Baby formula, an essential food source for babies with allergies or other medical needs, has risen several dollars per can. Parents who use formula for their kids easily spend about 12,000, uh, or 1200 rather, to 1500 per year. Now, this price hike is overwhelming to families already struggling with their other inflation related financial gouges. Senator Tom Cotton recently brought to light the plight of these worried parents, saying the formula shortage is a national crisis, hitting poor moms and kids the hardest. The FDA needs to immediately step up he uh, be transparent, explain how it will uh, get production restarted and give parents a timeline. And the administration needs to take this seriously. Well, there's not much chance of that. Unfortunately, the president uh, and the administration have been consistently downplaying um, shortages and inflation while simultaneously trying to spend as much as they can uh, get away with. We'll see what uh, what happens with regard to that. Meanwhile, Senator Roy Blunt actually. Yeah, Roy Blunt. Uh, recently uh, warned um, you can find different uh, numbers on this but roughly 25 percent of all wheat exports in the world come from Ukraine and Russia about 20 percent of the uh uh the corn exports in the world this is printed so tiny I'm really I've got new bifocals that's that transition thing I, I have to find the sweet spot and it's a bit challenging and this font is maybe 11 maybe 10 anyway I digress. Uh, Anyway, um, about 20 percent of the corn exports in the world and 90 percent of the sunflower cooking oil comes from there. And a lot of fertilizers come from there right now uh, from Ukraine, which is the bigger partner in the food distribution of the two countries. Well, he then observed and nothing is coming out of Ukraine. Um, Nothing is uh, coming out of the port of Odessa. Nothing is coming out of the port of um, Mariupol and hasn't since the Russian invasion began. Well, you can uh, go on from there. Newt Gingrich uh, recently uh, surmised that uh, we're going to continue setting, seeing higher prices every place from going to the gas station to going to the grocery store, which he says by September will be a bigger story than gasoline. Uh, He added food prices are going to uh, go up all summer. On a worldwide basis, they're going to be a genuine crisis. The longer they wait on inflation, the deeper for recession um, is going to be. Well, I did the best that I could with that one. Nine font, ten font, I don't know. Uh, Anyway, Senate Democrats failed to advance a bill to codify Roe versus Wade and create a national right to abortion earlier today. The procedural vote to invoke cloture and advance the Women's Health Protection Act failed again. In a 49 to 51 vote, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer chose to hold the vote despite the near certainty that Democrats would fail to meet the 60-vote threshold needed to break a Republican filibuster and advance the measure. There's a midterm election coming up, and some thought, well, this was... Are going to be useful to Democrats who are concerned about the outcome of that midterm election. The largely symbolic vote came after a leaked majority draft opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization revealed that the Supreme Court could be poised to overturn Roe versus Wade, returning the question of abortion to the states. A vote on this legislation is not an abstract exercise, so said Chuck Schumer last week, according to The Hill. This is as urgent and real as it gets. We'll vote to protect a woman's right to choose. I always um, find it interesting, the right to choose what? The right to choose, it's innocuous. Yes, absolutely, you should have the right to freedom to choose, but to choose what? is where the debate um, begins. Senator Amy Klobuchar, she um, similarly told NPR on Tuesday that it's really important to have this vote to show where everyone stands. Well, Senator Joe Manchin came out against the measure ahead of the vote on Tuesday, saying the Women's Health Protection Act is not Roe versus Wade codification. It's an expansion of abortion. And we'll talk more about that later in the day with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Uh, Manchin is correct. It would have expanded abortion rights and wrested from the states, uh, the power that the federal government would then uh, wheel. Well, the Senate uh, voted on whether to end debate on S-4132, the Women's Health Protection Act. And even though a similar vote on virtually identical House Bill 3755 failed on February 28th, you know, just a few weeks ago, Senate Majority Leader Schumer quickly set up this repeat in the wake of the leaked first draft of the Supreme Court opinion, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. Abortion advocates claim the Women's Health Protection Act would merely codify those Supreme Court decisions, but it would do much more than that. First, Congress and the Supreme Court are not simply interchangeable, as if either can provide a second bite at the political apple when the other bows out. In Rowan Casey, the court uh, claimed that the right to abortion resides in the 14th Amendment, position that even scholars who support that uh, result cannot defend. The bill refers to a constitutional right to terminate pregnancy, but such a thing will not exist after Dobbs corrects the Roe v. Casey error. Secondly, Congress doesn't have the authority to enact this legislation. Supporters, of course, claim that Congress' power to regulate interstate commerce allows it to do so because the provision of abortion services involves interstate commerce. Well, the uh, Women's um, Health Protection Act, however, doesn't regulate abortion services. It attempts to regulate how the state and local government do just that. That distinction makes all the constitutional difference. Under the Tenth Amendment, Congress can exercise only the powers enumerated, In the Constitution itself, the states may exercise the rest. Well, this system of federalism doesn't allow Congress to dictate how state and local governments exercise their powers that the Constitution reserves for them. Third, the abortion policy represented by this bill would uh, uh, be far more extreme than what the Supreme Court imposed in Roe, which in turn was more extreme than anything the common uh, law or statutes had ever established in the states. I'll leave it at that. But again, we'll. Revisit the subject when Lois Anderson joins me later in the second hour of today's program. Interestingly, the, uh, this uh, latest version of the abortion bill didn't include the words woman or women or female. Talking about abortion, woman, women or female was not included. Instead, the bill uses the word person to refer to those who bear and give birth to children, which are women, a woman or a female. A 2021 version of the bill, it used the word woman in the text 13 times, but it also clarified that the terms woman and women are used in this bill to reflect the identity of the majority of people targeted and affected by restrictions on abortion services. The majority. So abortion is the majority give uh, per, uh, performed on women. So who else is it performed on women? However, the 2021 version continued. Access to abortion services is critical to the help of every person capable of becoming pregnant, which would be a woman, women or a female. Just saying, stating the obvious. I thought science mattered. Weren't we all told that science ruled and that you were a Neanderthal knuckle dragging if you didn't embrace the science? You have to pick and choose where science applies. If it is consistent with your political view, then great. If it's not, then you just reject it and move on. Anywho, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, we'll talk with Doctor Deborah Harris, retired senior instructor from OHSU PSU School of Public Health, on the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body, and how to reengage post COVID. She's going to be part of the senior open discussion presented by by Parkview Christian Retirement Community Thursday, June 9th. And we'll give you all the important details when she joins us in the second hour of today's program. We'll also talk with Lois Anderson from Oregon Right to Life, whose offices were vandalized over the weekend. Well, remember when back in 1973, the mob of pro-life zealots surrounded the home of Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackmun after he authored the high court's Roe v. Wade opinion, which guaranteed a woman's right to an abortion? Or the time back in 1992 when similar mobs set up camp at the homes of Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy and David Souter, directing a shouts of shame and baby killer toward the three associate justices who co-authored the court's. Plurality opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which upheld Roe? Well, the truth is, neither do I, because these things never happened. Uh, That's in part because any effort to intimidate a judge is illegal. As columnist Mark Thiessen notes, federal law, Section 1507, Of Title 18 of the U.S. Code clearly states that it is unlawful to protest near a residence occupied or used by a judge, juror, witness, or court officer with the intent of influencing the discharge of his duty. Adding that anyone who uses any um, sound truck or similar device or resorts to any other demonstration in or near any such building or residence shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than one year or both. Well, in short, it's obstruction of justice. It's no different than tampering with a witness or a jury. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's comfortable with obstruction of justice. If protests are peaceful, yes, my house, there's protests three to four times a week outside my house. Same with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who seems thrilled by how so many have channeled um, their righteous anger into meaningful action. But more than simply knowing and respecting the law... Uh, Those on the right routinely avoid mob behavior because, let's just say it, we hold ourselves to higher standards of decency than others. Well, you might debate that, but nonetheless, it's against the law. The question is whether or not the law is going to be enforced, and thus far, not so much. Well, in other news from the last several days, in a classroom cover-up, a school has been caught hiding student gender transition from their parents and pushing an LGBTQ plus group. Do you know what's going on in your school classroom? A needs to resign. Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody called the DHS's Alejandro Mayorkas to resign over the Government Disinformation Board and the Migrant Crisis. In a parent's lawsuit, Scottsdale parents who discovered a secret dossier compiled to silence their speech announced that they um, have filed a lawsuit against the district. President Biden's disapproval numbers on handling the economy has jumped to 77 percent. Only two percent say the economy is very good. Uh, from the same story, Americans believe the economy is in the worst shape since January of 2012, a CNN Wednesday poll found about 77 percent believe the president's economy is poor. Forty seven percent said the economy is somewhat poor, while another 30 percent said it was very poor. The post-millennial CNN uh, Americans disapprove of the president's handling of the economy more than ever before. White House Press Secretary Jen Sackey is leaving. Karen Jean-Pierre will take over as press secretary beginning on the 13th of this month. The president on Thursday announced that uh, Karen Jean-Pierre, will replace Jen Psaki as White House press secretary, becoming the first black woman and first openly gay person to hold that position. Jean-Pierre, 44, grew up in Queens and will replace Psaki on the 13th while working more than a year as a deputy press secretary. Gavin Newsom says men cannot get pregnant and is mocked by Republicans for having reversed himself. Leah Barkokas, uh, in sharing a clip of him speaking out against the leaked draft opinion showing the Supreme Court overturning Roe v.ersus Wade, Newsom declared, if men could get pregnant, this wouldn't even be a conversation. This decision isn't about strengthening families. It's about extremism. It's about control. We are fighting for the right to choose, end quote. Well, conservatives, confused, given that uh, progressives have been telling us otherwise lately, had quite a few responses. Sebastian Gorka um, uh, called the governor a transphobe. A representative Dan Crenshaw, a Republican out of Texas, rose, wrote, rather then how do you explain this with an arrow pointing towards the new pregnant man emoji? The Daily Wire's Candace Owens uh, asked, wait, men can't get pregnant now? The commentator included a pregnant man emoji in her tweet as well. Meanwhile, Benjamin Watson says it must be uh, incredibly exhausting to be required to constantly remember which men can and which men can't get pregnant. Does the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, even know who they appointed as disinformations are? Well, it seems Mayorkas didn't do due diligence as he gave a green light to the Ministry of Truth. From the story in the New York Post, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Wednesday insisted he was unaware that the person his department tapped to head is Orwellian Disinformation Governance Board once called Hunter Biden's laptop Russian disinformation. Mayorkas uh, testified at the Senate Appropriations Committee. He was grilled over the hiring of Nina Jankovic as the DHS dis- disinformation czar and uh, the board she will uh, run that has been dubbed the Ministry of Truth by its critics. Philip Letzow says so Mayorkas tells some. Um, uh, Holly uh, of Missouri, that he doesn't know if DHS has any records of the disinformation governance board because the board has not yet met. But Nina Jankowitz herself says she's been working on the board for the past two months doing what? Open question. Rand Paul lambasted the Homeland Security secretary by claiming he doesn't want the Biden cabinet member anywhere near making decisions involving speech. We can't even agree what disinformation is. The Kennedy rebu- uh, Republican. Said to the DHS secretary, I don't want guardians. I want you to have nothing to do with speech. The senator tore into Mayorkas. You think we can't determine, you know, speech by traffickers of disinformation? Do you think the American people are so stupid they need you to tell them what the truth is? Paul questioned. You can't even admit what the truth is in the steel dossier. I don't trust government to figure out what the truth is. Government is largely disseminating disinformation. And finally, Town Hall's Kennedy uh, weighs in, saying, when the department picked Nina Jankowitz, was the department aware of her TikTok videos? Uh, they're really quite precocious. Mayorkas, I was not aware of those videos, he said in response. Well, Elon Musk has come out as marginally right of center. The elite media has set out to destroy him. Well, set out more vigorously. They'd already attempted uh, to do just that. But the New York Times wants the readers to find Musk somehow guilty for apartheid. Interviews with the relatives and former classmates reveal an upbringing in elite segregated white communities that were littered with anti-black government propaganda and attached from the atrocities that White uh, polit- uh, political leaders inflicted on black majority and Elon Musk must be held responsible. Of course, he was a kid at the time. The New York Post picked up on the story. Times correspondents John Eligen and Lindsey Chudle, they reported that Musk benefited from an upbringing in elite segregated white communities in suburban Johannesburg. Therefore, he shouldn't really have much to do with the uh, uh, the social media. Twitter. Sagar Injetti says in this article, New York Times itself reports, um, Elon Musk, one, had non-white friends growing up in apartheid. Two, uh, his own father was an anti-apartheid politician. Three, he literally left so he didn't have to serve in apartheid military. And they still inst- insinuate he is a racist. Ed Morrissey says Musk rebuked a fellow student for using an anti-black slur and got bullied for it. Uh, that's in paragraph 27, and later was one of only a handful of white people at the uh, funeral of a black student. That's in paragraph 28. John Sexton, the uh, framing and tone of this story is white supremacy is his life story, but the actual content is Teen Musk rejected racism. But that apparently doesn't matter. Meanwhile, the FTC is looking into Musk's purchase of Twitter. From that story, the Federal Trade Commission is reviewing Tesla's CEO A forty four billion dollar deal with Twitter setting up a deadline for a possible antitrust review. According to a Thursday report, a person familiar with the matter told Bloomberg the agency will decide next week whether to do an in-depth antitrust probe of the Twitter deal. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the news stories that accumulated while I was away and we'll continue to do that until the second hour. Got a couple of guests I think you'll enjoy. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Canada is apparently opening its border to Americans who want abortions. CBS reports that the recent leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion that states that the court's intention is to overturn Roe versus Wade has fueled outrage among advocates for abortion access on the other side of the border, with many wondering where they'll be able to go they need to be, um, in quotes, health care service? Well, on Tuesday, a Canadian official said her country will be open. The Minister of Families, Children and Social Development in Canada told CBS News uh, that very fact, that uh, the network, I don't see why we would not, uh, when asked whether Americans would be allowed to get abortions in that country. This is the head of the Ministry of Families, Children and Social Development. If they people come here and need access, certainly, you know, that's a service that would be provided, she said. Later adding 25 million unsafe abortions happened every single year. Criminalizing abortion doesn't mean that those abortions won't happen. What it means is they will be unsafe abortions. Of course, they've always been unsafe for the child in utero new press secretary same old game on thursday the white house uh, announced a replacement for jen sackey who's leaving for a host gig at msnbc there had been rumors about a month or so before um uh, uh, jean pierre um peter Ducey. well we won't go into all of that what uh, what we know about her uh she checks off a couple of significant boxes when it comes to a woke identity hierarchy she's both black and lesbian instead of uh, Uh, The first thing the left media seemingly noted about her is that she will be the first uh, in those categories. However, Jean-Pierre's anti-Semitic views uh, as an anti-Israel activist may also be of note. Furthermore, she's directly connected to the left media. Her uh, spouse is a correspondent for CNN, just more of the same uh, for the most radical administration in the U.S. history Well, soaring fertilizer prices put global food security at risk. The Department of Justice has unveiled new Office of Environmental Justice and the Pentagon is denying it's helping Ukraine target Russian generals. Congress fires its first warning shot on the president's Iran deal, and the FDA sharply limits use of Johnson & Johnson vaccine shots due to a rare blood clot. And Elon Musk uh, is going to serve as Twitter's CEO after he takes it over. Remote learning has uh, been uh, much more harmful than previously thought, according to research. We'll talk about that later in today's program. Well, a bipartisan group of lawmakers are sounding the alarm on the president's radical education proposal on student debt, uh, uh, predicting a domino effect. Experts share dire warnings for the Middle East if Iran obtains a nuclear weapon. And saying abortion means a big turnout, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy predicted on Fox News Sunday that the abortion issue will drive big voters turnout in the midterms. And on the second thought, Senator Lindsey Graham said the SCOTUS abortion decision will not impact the midterms due to the president's incompetency. We'll see what actually happens at the polls. The Washington Post's false claim, Twitter users mock Washington Post's claim that women and people of color will suffer most from Elon Musk's Twitter buyout. In other words, freedom of speech is not for uh women or minorities. Following the first weekend marked by protests outside the homes of Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice John Roberts, Justice Clarence Thomas says the court will not be bullied. Speaking at a judicial event in Atlanta, as a society, we are becoming addicted to wanting particular outcomes, not living with the outcomes we don't like. Thomas said at the conference, we're living with the uh, we can't rather be in an institution that can be bullied into giving you just the outcomes you want. The events from earlier this week are a symptom of that, he added. Fox News chief uh, news reported that Chief Justice John Roberts spoke at the same conference on Thursday uh, where he called the leak absolutely appalling. The justice went on to dismiss any questions that the leak would affect the Supreme Court's final decision. A leak of this um, stature is absolutely appalling. Roberts said if the person behind it thinks that it will affect our work, that's just foolish. Again, they will not be bullied. A well, pro-life pregnancy center in Madison, Wisconsin has been vandalized. If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. That was scrawled on the wall of the center and a pregnancy resource center right here in the Portland area was also vandalized. Missouri and Louisiana are suing the president's or at least Biden officials for collusion with big technology. The Republican Attorneys General of Missouri and Louisiana are accusing the president and other top government officials in a lawsuit of colluding with social media giants such as Facebook, Twitter and YouTube to censor and suppress speech under the guise of combating dangerous misinformation. The lawsuit claims that Biden and his supporters during the 2020 election campaign and now in office have directly worked with executives and employees at big tech companies to censor content related to controversial political uh, debates over the past two years. Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt said, according to the lawsuit, candidate Biden also threatened the Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg rather, should be subject to um, civil liability and even criminal prosecution for not censoring such core political speech. And the New York Post um, reports that the attorneys asked the court to declare that the defendants uh, violated the First Amendment and that the defendants had exceeded their statutory authority. They're also asking that the court stop the officials from continuing to engage in unlawful conduct to suppress free speech. Well, First Lady Jill Biden paid a surprise visit to Ukraine on Sunday where she met with First Lady Olena Zelensky. Her trip comes shortly after Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other members of Congress visited Ukraine and met with President Volodymyr Zelensky. The women came together in a small classroom sitting on either side of the wooden table and greeted each other in front of reporters before they met in private. Zelensky and her two children have been staying at an undisclosed location for their safety. The visit allowed Biden to conduct the kind of personal diplomacy that her husband uh, would like uh, to do himself. President Joe Biden said when he visited Poland in March that he was disappointed he couldn't cross the border and go into Ukraine to see conditions firsthand, but that he was not allowed, likely due to uh, security reasons. The White House said as recently as last week that the president would love to visit, but there uh, were no plans for him to do so at this time. L.A. County Sheriff um, Alex Villanueva says uh, D.A. George Gascon has failed to prosecute over 13,000 cases from the story. Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva said his office presented 13,238 cases that the district attorney's office ultimately declined to prosecute under district attorney George Gascon's new soft on crime. A special directives when Gascon took office in December of 2020, he vowed to stop prosecuting juveniles as adults or pursuing sentences of life in prison without parole. However, he later said that he would review the specific circumstances of each case before making a judgment. There's no deterrence in this current scheme, Villanueva said. We have to have teeth in what we're doing. The deputies are going to continue doing their job. They make the the arrests. They'll write the reports. But then what happens after it's submitted to the D.A. is where it all falls apart. He added... Um, his department does not have a working relationship with the DA's office and that he has never met Gascon in public, having only ever had one phone call with him. Fox News reported that astonishing numbers of cases. uh, These are people that did bad things that left a victim, have the evidence presented, and they said, don't bother. He continued. Boeing is uh, leaving Chicago due to the crime spike. Uh, National Review reports that Boeing, the world's Third largest defense contractor and a famous maker of passenger jets is moving its headquarters to Chicago or rather from Chicago to Arlington, Virginia. The move comes as Chicago is increasingly ravaged by crime and random drive by shootings in the middle of downtown. In recent weeks, the theater district in downtown Chicago has had to shut down plays because the area has become so unsafe at night. Crime in Chicago is up 35 percent this year compared with the same period in twenty twenty one. Theft is up 67 percent. Well, according to a new CNN poll, SCOTUS, uh, the leak has not changed projections for the midterm. Hot airs John Sexton says, I'm sure they will come as a complete shock to some people, but it doesn't to me. Pro-life voters just learned Uh, They're uh, on the cusp of winning a battle. They have been fighting for the last 50, nearly 50 years. Of course, they're feeling enthusiastic. Democrats, on the other hand, just learned that they are losing the same battle after just as many years. So, of course, they're not feeling overwhelmed with enthusiasm. The outrage on the left may drive some enthusiasm, but just as likely there will be a surge of activity on the right from people who had felt discouraged and had given up. But who are now feeling some hope? Even the CNN poll suggests something like that may be happening. It's the true, uh, it's true that it's, um, found 66% opposed striking down row, but that number is actually down since the leaked draft decision. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming here at the top of the hour. And in the second hour, we'll talk with Dr. Deborah Harris. She's a retired senior instructor from OHSU and PSU about an upcoming workshop on the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body and how to re-engage after COVID-19. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a senior open discussion series you need to know about. Whether or not you are a senior or care about someone who is, Gateway Little Chapel of the Chimes is uh, sponsoring a senior discussion, the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body and re-engaging post-COVID. It's going to be hosted by Parkview Christian Retirement Community on June the 9th at 10 a.m. That's a Thursday. And joining us to talk more about this, because this is a subject, I think, about which we should all know a bit more, is uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Deborah Harris. She is a PhD. She has 40 plus years experience in education. She is a retired senior instructor from OHSU PSU School of Public Health. And she has a passion for continuing education in the senior communities here in the state of Oregon. And we're delighted to have her with us to talk about this upcoming event to which uh, seniors uh, are invited. And uh, you, I think, are going to be interested as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Harris.
3: Well, thank you for having me. And hello to everyone out there that's listening on this important topic. Absolutely.
2: you know, I am the primary caregiver for my mother who is ninety one years old. She lives with my husband wow. and I and has for the last i think it's almost twenty years now. so this is a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, so i'm so grateful that Parkview is uh, hosting this discussion. You will be featured along with a panel of uh, of experts on the subject of the effects of isolation, and loneliness. Uh, let's begin by just talking about coming out of this pandemic season, which, of course, we're not entirely out of. How has loneliness and isolation impacted seniors in our community?
3: Well, as you know, Georgie, and it started when the COVID started in March of 2020, and it has continued. And coming out of it, we're slow to come out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of residual effects from um, anywhere from isolation still to people just figuring out how to reconnect back into society. And so we almost have to train people on how to do that, because for two years, we were shut down, literally, and we were told not to c- connect with people. And so that's so adverse to what we are normally um, used to, is connecting with people. And so to you know not connect is we have to really retrain ourselves.
2: You know that is so true. i I recall early in the pandemic, a walking uh, uh, next to someone or someone approaching in a grocery store. And our natural response was to part from one another, you know, to put as much space between us as possible. Learning to unlearn that practice is just one example of how challenging it is. Uh, and for seniors, many of whom were isolated during this season, it's a challenge to re-engage and, um, to recognize that it's, it's safe to do so at this time. Where do you begin to re-engage after a season in which we were t- told to really be repelled by other people who um, may cause serious harm?
3: Yes, well, I just think that that's where education comes in, as we really have to coach people on how to do that. And we have to remind people. So coaching and reminding people are two really important aspects of that. Um, and just also very sm- slow steps, mild steps. And, you know, it's just not seniors. It's a lot of different yeah. people, anywhere from teenagers to above, even elementary school children. So I think that just relearning, reteaching, reengaging, reemphasizing, all those res that we, we need to keep continually reminding people of how to do that and you know talking about the um you know with more people vaccinated now we don't have to go back to the six foot um away but we you know we have to watch the surges and so that's going to be important to the surges of covid so uh,
2: I, one of the th- phrases that i'm hearing these days is the subject of chronic loneliness how do we tell if we are the victim of chronic loneliness before we begin to, to walk out of that? Is there such a thing and what does it look like?
3: Well, lonely, chronic loneliness looks like um, isolation when someone is, is physically isolating themselves, not engaging with other people, saying no to like going out to lunch, maybe a car ride on a Sunday, saying no to that and people that are not responding to the telephone. Um, I just did a little workshop for the people at First Presbyterian Church that go out and visit the shut-ins, and they said it's really important for them to know because of the fact that the people that are, are not even shut-ins are not coming to church. So how can we um, figure out who those people are and then reach out to them? And, you know, and, and I think more face-to-face, Um, engagement as opposed to talking engagement over the phone uh, because people cannot answer the phone. And if you see someone not answering the phone when they have in the past, that is an important indicator that they are going through loneliness, not going out to, you know, not going out to lunch, maybe when you used to invite them and they would do that. So really changes in behavior patterns.
2: Mm. So it's important for the individual who may be experiencing that loneliness Um, to recognize it in themselves. But for others who have previously associated with uh, seniors, for example, who have been isolated, we need to be aware as well and uh, perhaps know when to step in.
3: Yes, and and, uh, we will be talking about different things uh, during this workshop um, uh, about how we can um, re-get ourselves involved in society.
2: We're talking about a a workshop that's coming up on June the 9th. That's a Thursday. At Parkview Christian Retirement Community, it's part of the Senior Open Discussion Series, and they're presenting this time around the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body, and reengaging post-COVID. It may seem like a relatively easy thing to do, but not so much for many of our neighbors. Now, in addition to your speaking, there's going to be a panel uh, that will also be presenting. Uh, talk a little bit about that part of the uh, the afternoon workshop. Well, or, excuse me, the morning workshop.
3: Yeah, we're going to be having different views. Um, David Dornack, who is an associate assistant pastor at First Presbyterian Church, he has been he's a retired senior pastor at Rose City Park Presbyterian Church, but he will be talking about loneliness and how what he is seeing from a pastor Christian um, perspective. And then we also have Kathy Weeks, who is a licensed uh, clinical social worker who works at OHSU in the area of cancer support groups and isolation with those uh, those folks.
2: And again, it's an opportunity for people to learn more. Now, this is going to be held at the um, Parkview Christian Retirement Community. It's a senior open discussion. Who is invited and who do you encourage to participate?
3: I encourage everyone to come. I mean, and like I said, this is not just, you know, this does not just affect seniors. It, in fact, affects everyone. And I will be giving some great resources for uh, people, how to connect and reach out. And, um, and I would have everyone, uh, caregivers, seniors, anybody that has an interest in this topic and wants more knowledge. I am so much about learning Lifelong learning, you can't learn enough in life and pass it on to those that maybe not have those opportunities that you do.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. And as I mentioned, as a caregiver, it's always so helpful if you have aging parents to be aware of some of the challenges they might be facing and how to address them in an effective way. Uh, It's not just uh, what seems intuitive necessarily, but learning um, how to identify and address some of the challenges that they're facing can be such a tremendous help to them and to those who uh, to care about them um, to take advantage of this opportunity. Again, we're talking about the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body and reengaging post-COVID. Parkview Christian Retirement Community is hosting this event that's coming up on Thursday, June the 9th. It's going to start at 10 a.m., but 9.30 is registration. There's going to be some refreshments in the community room, and they ask that you please RSVP. In addition to hearing from Dr. Uh, Dr. Deborah Harris, uh, you'll also have an opportunity to hear from a panel. And uh, will there be a Q&A time during that uh, portion of the workshop?
3: Absolutely. I, I really believe in questions and
2: answers because uh, you stimulate people's
3: thinking while you're doing the workshop. And so people always have answers and our questions, and we'd love to answer those questions.
2: Can you stay with us for another few minutes? I need to take a break, but I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask if you have the time. Sure. Great. Great. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Dr. Deborah Harris. She has 40 plus years experience in education. She's a retired senior instructor from OHSU PSU School of Public Health and has a passion for continued education in the senior communities here in Oregon and those who care about them. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Deborah Harris. She has 40 plus years' experience in education and is a retired senior instructor from OHSU PSU School of Public Health. She's going to be one of the featured speakers at the upcoming. Um, senior open discussion series uh, workshop, the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body and reengaging post COVID. I've been uh, talking for weeks now about statistics that we're pointing to where people feel lonely and isolated. And this is has reached epidemic proportions. Uh, so this workshop will not only address the needs of seniors, but others who are also impacted uh, by the events of the last two years. One of the things I wanted to ask you, uh, Dr. Harris, was are there physical symptoms um, that may also relate to or reflect um, uh, that kind of chronic loneliness we talked about earlier?
3: Yes, I'm I, um, not eating um, and not um you know, maybe if they were doing something before as a hobby or something, you know, getting out and walking every day, an activity that they used to do that they don't do, um, withdrawing from friends and um, neighbors, um, not talking as much as they used to. Um, and those are the primary um, things, not sleeping at well at night. Um and um that's pretty much you know the main things that you need to be looking for.
2: Now how important is it to address that kind of loneliness? I mean can you just go on in life and uh continue to be lonely or how important is it generally speaking in terms of one's well-being that you really um make an effort to combat that kind of loneliness?
3: Well, I think that, that um, the person that is closest to them, that has had the, the closest relationship to them, is the one person that they might trust, that they might be familiar with. And that person really needs to be the person to try to get them out of their um, isolation, their isolating, and, um, and re-engage them slowly but surely in very small steps. Um, even if you're just sitting with someone through the day, um, I think is an important thing, um, for you to do if you have that capability, that time and, and, um, and just to be able to, uh, give them some ideas of things that they can do. A lot of seniors don't know computer technology and some of the computer technology is very, very simple, for example, YouTube. I mean, it's there's lots of different YouTubes that people could watch, even if they don't have TV, um, and that might really get them involved. I, I follow a, a particular YouTube that's a, a farm in Texas, and they have mostly senior citizens as their as their their viewers and. Um, And those people really, and they post, you know, YouTube almost every day, Saturday and Sundays, and people look forward to that. So if you can get that person stimulated into doing something new and different, I think it's very, very helpful.
2: Well, I appreciate that you emphasize um, how those of us who are not yet in that category of seniors or haven't experienced the kind of isolation that many of them have, there's a role to play in helping them re-engage. I, I know some might feel a bit socially awkward or find it challenging uh, to engage with others. What do you say to those who uh, think that loneliness is perhaps a better option than trying to um, address feeling socially awkward or knowing how to engage with others?
3: Well, I think that they you have you can explain to them that the quality of life that they are living is always more uh, qualitative if they have people around them. People are there are they thrive in social situations. and we know that we it extends life longer if we have social connections. and um, and so I think what it is is if you can get people, to If you can go with people to different activities and go with those, with those people that are isolating, if you can go with them or, um, you know, make sure that you, you know them and, and, and not force them, but to slowly, you know, take them out for a ride. You know, even this riding around a neighborhood or a city or out in the country and letting them see, you know, different things that are happening and that, you know, so they can visualize what kinds of things that they might be able to do.
2: Yeah, and I know that uh, for me and my household with my mom, that's such an important thing to give her something to look forward to, something to do, to re-engage with the beauty of nature, and just the challenge of keeping that stimulation going. And it makes such a tremendous difference in her sense of well-being and, uh, you know, looking forward uh, into the future. We're talking today about a senior open discussion. It's part of a series. Uh, this time the subject will be the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body and re-engaging post-COVID. It's going to be hosted by Parkview Christian Retirement Community Thursday, June 9th. It's going to begin at 10 a.m., but you can register at 9 a.m. and there'll be refreshments for you there. They'll be meeting in the community room and ask that you RSVP. In addition to Dr. Harry, who will be presenting. There's a panel of uh, others who will also be presenting and an opportunity for Q&A. Kathy Weeks is a social worker with OHSU, the Reverend David uh, Dornack with First Presbyterian Church, Laura Matthews, Marketing Director at Parkview Retirement, Pamela Hinkle, the Advantage uh, Gateway Little Chapel of the Chimes. And this is a great opportunity, not just for seniors, but for all of us who may be facing loneliness um, and the effects of that isolation that was foisted upon us some two years ago, as we are reemerging back to what we hope will be a sense of normalcy. So let me encourage you, if you are someone experiencing that kind of chronic loneliness and isolation, if you care about someone who's in that position, and it doesn't matter if you happen to be a senior or someone who's much younger, this is an opportunity for you to engage in conversation and to learn more about how to reemerge and reengage engage Post-COVID, how um, How is this uh, subject being received by those who are who have the opportunity to kind of consider the impact that these last two years have had on what um, might have been uh, considered a normal life in which you on a regular basis would engage with loved ones, neighbors and friends, but was uh, severely disrupted? How is this uh, this message being received?
3: Well, I, it's being received very well because people, like I said, need to be reintroduced to these kinds of skills um, that we've been suppressed with for so long, for two years. And I I think you said something really important, Georgine, is that something that we look forward to, that's extremely important, mm-hmm. that we all have something that we look forward to and that we all have a sense of purpose in life, that there is something to get up and put your clothes on every yes. morning for And, um, and we need to find, you know, find those things and re reconnect with those things that we, we, that did that for us. And so I think it's being very well received because people want to get back into the normalcy as, you know, as much as we can. And, um, and I, and I do think we have to remind people on how to do that. I mean, it's, It's nothing that, you know, just comes naturally. We have to really be educated on it. And the more we hear it, the more we can see it and the more we can do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was just having a conversation with one of my coworkers earlier today, and we were talking about how sluggish – uh, things seem to be for each of us, you know, we're younger, youngish. Well, not that right. young, but <laughs> but still just I... getting back into what was the normal routine at the pace that we were used to has been something of a challenge. And you add to that some of the circumstances that uh, others have, have faced, making it even more challenging. This is a great opportunity to confront head on. Uh, The challenge that we may not fully appreciate has impacted the way we live. And again, we're talking about this uh, workshop, the effects of loneliness and isolation on the mind and body. And it does have an impact that may go deeper than you imagined and how to re-engage post-COVID, to return to some normalcy, to engage in in fellowship and conversation. Once again, Park Parkview Christian Retirement Community is hosting this event. That's coming up Thursday, June the 9th at 10 a.m. Registration is at 930, and they're offering some res- uh, refreshments at that time. It's going to be held in the community room, and they ask that you pre- please RSVP. Well, let me just say how much I appreciate uh, your willingness to uh, facilitate continuing education in this uh, this area and to seniors in particular. And this is going to be a great event. I hope many of our listeners will avail of themselves of the opportunity to learn more, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of others uh, that they may uh, come in contact with, love, and just live next door to. So it's going to be a great day. Right, great exactly. Day. Yeah. Well, As, that, go ahead, please.
3: Well, no, I just think that it's so important to, if you're, if you think that you you know know everything, you might learn something new, and you can pass that on to somebody that may not know anything. So,
2: yes. yeah, absolutely. Well, once again, Doctor Harris, thank you for talking with us today, and we look forward to this great opportunity coming up on June 9th at Parkview Christian Retirement Community. Thank you, Georgine. Bye bye. Uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a challenge um, with my mom now at ninety one and seeing. Uh, some of her facilities decline somewhat. It's become part of my life's work to encourage her to recognize that her life still has purpose and meaning to give her things to look forward to. Uh, to give her things to do that are productive and creative, and uh, to help us along the way for those of us who are either in that situation or want to encourage and help others. If you're looking for an area of ministry, this is certainly one that cries out for uh, younger people to uh, to be involved in. This is a great opportunity to learn more uh, during this post-COVID period. And to understand our neighbors a bit better, whether they're seniors or perhaps younger people who are just struggling after everything we've been through over these last couple of years. Once again, Parkview Christian Retirement Community is hosting the event Thursday, June the 9th at 10 a.m. They ask that you RSVP. The registration is at 930, along with some refreshments. And it's going to be a really fruitful time of conversation, Q&A, and great information. So I hope you'll uh, take advantage. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break. And when we return, we'll talk with Lois Anderson. She's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. As you may have heard, the Oregon Right to Life office was vandalized as part of the expression of outrage um, when the leaked information about the Supreme Court's ruling in the Casey uh, decision was made public, which, by the way, was not lawful. In any uh, event, we're going to talk about what happened. Also, one of the pregnancy resource centers was vandalized as well. We'll uh, talk about all of that when she joins us coming up in our next segment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, at least five pro-life pregnancy resource centers were vandalized within a week of the Supreme Court's opinion leak. They targeted at least five pro-life crisis pregnancy centers in the country within a week after that leaked draft opinion signaled the Supreme Court is poised to strike down Roe versus Wade. Before they've actually done anything, they struck. Well, last Thursday, the Southeast Portland Pregnancy Resource Center was targeted by vandals. Um, they scrawled some graffiti on the wall. They broke um, numerous windows. Uh, first image said because of the nature of the crime, it's a federal offense. Uh, there were others as well across the country. Well, Oregon Right to Life's offices were damaged in an attack as well. In the late evening of Sunday, May the 8th, incendiary devices, one of which exploded and caught the building on fire, um, uh, no one was harmed, uh, thankfully. They minimized the damage to the building, and the, the uh, law enforcement is actively investigating the incident. Well, you can imagine that everyone's sh- uh, shaken up by the attack. And here to talk with us about all of that is Lois Anderson. She is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Thank you so much for joining us, Lois. Hi, Georgine. I'm
4: always happy to join you, but um, this subject of course
2: is pretty disturbing well it is disturbing first of all there's questions about um, whether or not the illegality of um, of that strike and some of the other issues uh, the protests that are taking place around the country surrounding the leaked information from the supreme court is being appropriately addressed but the the violence that we're seeing uh, at pregnancy resource centers and at offices like oregon right to life is very disturbing can you tell us what happened well,
4: what we know is um, that around 10.30 on, on Sunday night, uh, there was an individual around our offices who had two, um, and the, the police now have called them Molotov cocktails, and that's a, a more um, common term that people mm-hmm. can imagine what that was. Um, we're incredibly grateful. There were two witnesses um, that actually both of them called 911, which is honestly, the reason why the fire and the damage was not worse than it was because of that quick action by those witnesses. Um, and um, one of which stayed around to give a statement to the police that um, our fire department responded very quickly, were able to extinguish the fire. And we don't know like what else was, was planned. We didn't have any graffiti um, in, on our building, like there have been in some of these other attacks, but, um, they did, the person did attempt to break the windows. There's evidence of that. Um, but because of the quick action of the witnesses and the first responders, they were able to, um, process the scene, gather evidence. And we're just so grateful that the Kaiser police department is taking this very seriously and investigating thoroughly.
2: (laughs) Um, How much damage would you say has been done to the building, and are you able to function in that facility at this point?
4: We are able to function. We're so grateful for that. There was um, some uh, uh, light smoke damage, but nothing um, we were were able to to function in the office, and um, we're still... We're still waiting to get, you know, figures from how, what it will cost. We'll have to replace the HVAC unit, which, um, you know, they're not cheap. No. But um, we're, we're thinking that probably somewhere around $10,000 um, or, or even less than that, which we're incredibly grateful for. Um, but we we will have some costs because we are considering some security upgrades now that this is, has happened.
2: Now, some would argue, particularly in the pro-abortion camp and those who are violently responding to the leaked decision that we may or may not get from the Supreme Court uh, this summer, that um, Oregon Right to Life um, should be a viable target because pro-lifers have in the past uh, acted um, in uh, response to pro-abortion policies in a violent way. What has been Oregon Right to Life's practice and uh, policy in that area? Well, Oregon Right to Life has had a
4: long-standing policy of peace, and we have abided by that. And um, I will just say, too, that anybody who's observed what's gone on historically in the pro-life movement knows that those violent actors have been um, on their own individually, and they have been broadly condemned by the pro-life movement. We're not a violent movement. Like, it's the opposite of, of what... Of what we're trying to do. And um, Oregon Right to Life specifically has been, again, like I said, had a long standing policy that we've abided by. And I, I think for us too, we've been in this building and in this case for, for decades. We've never had so much as a protester show up. We just kind of sort of feel like we've flown under the radar. So I think that even even uh, caused us to be just more surprised that we would be attacked in this way and um, I also just wanted to uh, say for us you know we don't we're not meeting women on a daily basis um, in our offices that's that's not our role mm-hmm. and I just I feel so badly for the staff and for the facility at First Image is they do such incredible work. It's important work and meeting the needs of women. And, um, I, I just feel so badly that they have the kind of attack where it was much more difficult for them to get up and going again yeah. than, than it was for us.
2: Yeah. In a statement that was released by Oregon Right to Life, you make the point that no board member, officer, employee, or chapter officer may participate in any illegal or harmful act against another person or property in pursuing pro-life activity. And Oregon Right to Life will not knowingly do business with any organization or business that endorses violence in any way toward pro-abortion persons or businesses so this is a long standing uh policy that Oregon Right to Life has has held
4: yes it is and and we're very serious in in uh, holding everyone accountable for that
2: sort of is consistent with the notion of (laughs) pro-life. You respect the life of others. I won't go into the alternative uh, perspective and why it's not surprising to me that there would be violent um, outbursts, but I'll leave that for another day and a different conversation. I can imagine that your team is somewhat shaken up by this attack. Uh, Moving forward, um, you mentioned that you are probably going to have to implement some security measures. Any other changes that we might expect?
4: Um, no, nothing as far as our daily operations. Um, you know, it's important for us to continue continue the work that we're doing. Um, we're living in both in a very exciting time because of the, the potential of um, Roe v. Wade being overturned or significantly changed, and it's very exciting. But we also know that um, we've had almost 50 years in this country, even longer in Oregon, where legal abortion has corrupted our institutions and it has, um, twisted, um, our education system, our media. And so it, it's going to take a while. Um, I think we have to be patient with people and even though there will be, um, perhaps more violent outbursts, I certainly hope not, but, um, we have to understand that, that, um, we're we're going to need to be patient to unravel this distortion and this corruption that's been happening in our culture.
2: Your um, your thoughts on whether or not you, you think the Supreme Court will in fact overturn Roe v.ersus Wade? Of course, this preliminary decision could be reversed. There could be lots of changes between now and the time that it's actually officially made public. Your your thoughts on uh, that decision and what would likely happen here in Oregon if it were overturned?
4: Uh I, um, well, I think it is going to be overturned for anybody that read this draft opinion. It is excellently written. It is, um, uh, you know, there's 30 pages, so basically 30 pages of appendix and footnotes. It's just so well-reasoned. And even people who believe in abortion rights have have said that the Roe v. Wade decision itself was not a well reasoned or a good decision, and so I think that um, if it happens now in this in on this case with this court, would be it is possible. Um, but if it doesn't happen in this case in this court, I believe it will happen um, because there's just. Um, uh, there's just such a, a strong case, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better word, to, yeah. to overturn it. Now, of course, in Oregon, we have what what overturning Roe v. Wade means. It does not. It does not make abortion illegal nationwide. What it means is that each state's laws will now stand and go into and go into effect. In Oregon, we do not have any um, kind of protective legislation for unborn children. And so there would be no law restricting any abortion, which means there would be essentially no change uh, when it comes to abortion policy in Oregon. And um, of course, we are want to work to change that, but I I think it's really important for people to understand what the actual impact of overturning Roe, um, what it means.
2: Yeah, yeah. In this state, uh, any thoughts on the Women's Health Protection Act that failed to pass once again in the in the Senate earlier today?
4: Well, thank God that it didn't pass, um, and I I hope that everyone listening to this will um, understand how extreme that law mm-hmm. is and consider what your representatives, what your senators, what um, your—because the House of Representatives passed it before it went to the Senate—what they did according to their vote. If they voted for this legislation, they were voting for um, a federal power grab um, to override any kind of restriction, any kind of protective legislation that the state wanted to implement for all nine months of pregnancy— and um, this is a, this is an ex- we're talking about taking the lives of children who are fully viable outside the womb, who are um, who have disabilities, who all of all of these things that that um, most people in the United States, when they're faced with these specific questions, they know I don't I don't believe in that. Um, they wanted to push this policy on the entire country. It was an extreme power grab. And we have the ability to hold our elected officials accountable at the ballot box. And everyone needs to make sure that they are doing that this year.
2: Absolutely. Lois Anderson, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye bye. Again, Lois Anderson is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Their office faced some vandalism. Fortunately, they're able to continue with their work one of the pregnancy resource centers here in the Portland metro area not so fortunate uh, in that the damage was more extensive we'll try to talk with them more about that later this week hey you're listening to the Georgine Rice show quick break and we'll be back to wrap things up
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice show. Well, there's a new study out that confirms that students that were forced into remote learning due to school closures experienced significant learning loss, which hurt poor and minority students the most. That's according to a study it was conducted by researchers at Harvard's Center for Education Policy Research. While well, the study looked at the consequences of K-through-12 hybrid and remote learning over a period of 2 years. 2 years starting in the fall of 2019 and found that students who were in person for the majority of the 2020-2021 school year on average lost about 20% of a year's worth of math learning, while students who were learning remotely suffered a 50% loss of a year's worth of math learning in the same time period. Now, Researchers compared the MAP test results of 2.1 million students in third through eighth grades at almost 10,000 schools in 49 states and Washington, D.C. The study broke students into groups based on how much time they spent in the classroom during the 2020-2021 school year. Well, high-poverty schools that were remote for the majority of that uh, school year uh, suffered the most, losing half a year of achievement growth, which was about twice as much as their counterparts at low-poverty schools in the same districts. When the districts shifted to remote instruction, students in high-poverty schools were most negatively impacted. That's uh, what the Center for Education Policy Research Faculty Director Thomas Kane said, according to a press release announcing the findings. Well, school districts urgently need to reassess their plans and ensure that the scale of their catch-up efforts matches the magnitude of their students' losses. If they don't, we'll see the largest widening in education inequality in a generation. Now, that is a stark statement to be made. School districts urgently need to reassess their plans and ensure that the scale of their catch-up efforts matches the magnitude of their students' losses. If they don't, we'll see the largest widening in educational inequality in a generation. That's a quote from the study. Well, students in major cities and blue states were more likely to be forced into remote learning due to uh, Democrat ap- um, uh, pop- uh, politicians, rather, who pushed lockdowns and school closures. Teachers unions also lobbied extensively for remote learning throughout the pandemic. New York City public schools didn't fully reopen to in-person learning until September of last year after 18 months of pandemic restrictions, according to The New York Times. Also, Los Angeles public schools, they didn't go back to the classroom until the fall of 2021. Um, The head of uh, Los Angeles largest school uh, teachers union denied that lockdowns and remote learning harm students claiming there's no such thing as learning loss. Well, this study begs to differ. Our kids, she said, didn't lose anything. She claimed that was in August of last year. It's okay that our babies may not have learned all of their timetables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. Did they? Well, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan passed in March of 2020 provided preschool through 12th grade students, or schools rather, with elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds to cope with COVID-19, uh, to keep schools safely open, and combat learning loss and mental health, according to the White House fact sheet. While this aid might be sufficient for districts, that were primarily in person for the 2020-21 uh, school year. High poverty districts that were learning uh, remotely for much of that year will need to spend nearly all of that, all of their federal aid on academic recovery to help students recover from pandemic related achievement losses. The study found the American Rescue Plan only requires districts to spend 20% of its funds on students' academic recovery. Only 20 percent, well, critics of the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds don't think money from the federal relief package has been spent wisely. And even though American students are struggling with low test scores and proficiency rates as a result of the pandemic, countless districts across the country have chosen to use their elementary and secondary school emergency relief and American Rescue Plan funds on controversial programming like SEL, social emotional learning, rather than the remedial a remediation of covid-19 related learning loss that's a, what the parents defending education president nicole neely points out what districts uh, do going forward with the unprecedented federal resources they will uh, will have um, uh, will go a long way toward determining uh, just how successful we are as a nation at helping students recover from the dramatic effects of the pandemic now that we better understand those dramatic effects Dan Goldhaber, the director of the calendar at the American Institute for Research uh, said, according to a press research, but unprecedented learning loss uh, that uh, must be addressed or we'll see a significant loss uh, of historic proportions in the days ahead. Well, you've been listening to the Georgine Rice show, Uh, looking forward to uh, returning uh, to the mic. Once again, tomorrow we have some, uh, some things lined up for you, so I hope you will join us. James Blend is our producer, Sam Maupin, the engineer, and I'd like to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And once again, we'd like to thank the guest hosts for this program. In my absence, as Dan Rice and I celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary in Honolulu, Hawaii. We weren't there for very long, but it was a wonderful time to get away and just reflect back on God's faithfulness over these 40 years and to look forward to what he has in store for us in the days ahead. So thank you to our guest hosts and thank you for listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine
1: Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ